0: So today is Super Bowl Sunday, and I mentioned that for two reasons. One is that there is an unwritten rule among pastors in the United States that on Super Bowl Sunday you have to talk about Super Bowl somehow. So I'm fulfilling my obligation as an American pastor to mention that it is Super Bowl Sunday. But the second is because as I was reading this passage, I was actually thinking about that a little bit. My family watches the Super Bowl. It's the only football game we watch in an entire year. In fact, it's... I, I don't remember the last time I watched a regular season game, probably 30 years ago. A long time ago was when I watched a regular season football game. So the challenge sometimes then when watching the Super Bowl is, I don't know who these teams are. (laughs) I don't know who these players are. All kinds of questions. Well, who's this quarterback? Why is this person doing that? Why are these people, the announcers going on and on about all this stuff? I don't have any idea. Because I haven't been following the rest of the season. I haven't been watching all these other games. So it kind of comes out of context and it's still kind of fun to watch. And that's kind of like Romans chapter 12 in this. Because as Jan pointed out as she was reading, it starts with a big therefore. And therefores imply something went before it. And so like trying to watch a Super Bowl without having seen the rest of the season, you can kind of make sense of the game. You can read Romans chapter 12 without having read the rest of Romans and make some sense of it, but it makes a lot more sense if you've read the rest of Romans, if you've been following along with what Paul has been writing. So Romans is this letter written to a church in Rome, early followers of Jesus, in Rome, and Paul is writing to them to encourage them, to tell them about the good news of Jesus, to encourage missions to help them with conflicts that are going on. And so he's written 11 chapters before this. Now, we're not going to take time and read those 11 chapters right now. But we have to understand what's happened before to understand the therefore, and part of what he says is in view of God's mercy. And that's what Paul has been painting a picture of in those first 11 chapters. God's mercy. And so he's painted a picture that people have chosen their own way over God's way people have decided what's right and what's wrong among themselves, and as a consequence have been enslaved to this sin and become subject to death. And God, in His mercy, in His grace, in His decision to give a gift, has called to rescue people through Jesus out of this. And this rescue is a gift, or the word that the Bible often uses is a grace, that this mercy comes as a grace. In other words, it's not based on the worth of the people. It's not a picture of God looking down and saying, well, you deserve to be saved, you don't deserve to be saved, you deserve, no, you don't. But instead, it's a grace that is given to all. And secondly, it's a gift that is self-giving, and because the gift that God gives is Himself in Jesus, to come and to offer Himself on a cross as a sacrifice. The word that theologians use, it's cruciform. In other words, it's cross-shaped. It's Christ-shaped. It looks like giving of self. And so when Paul says, in view of God's mercy, he's saying, in view of this gift that God gives, regardless of people's worth, that's unconditioned on people's value, in view of God's mercy, which is self-giving, then he calls on people. He says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of all this, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So what he's saying is, in response to all of what I've said before, and so we can imagine that this congregation in Rome, and it may have been 30, 40 people gathered in somebody's house hearing someone read this letter from Paul. Paul wasn't there. They weren't sitting all in their own corners opening the letter looking at it, but there was somebody sharing this. And as they're listening to this, the reader The one who performs the letter is kind of the language it would use, would stop and say, therefore, based on God's mercy. And maybe the reader would even stop and say, remember God's mercy? This mercy that's unconditioned, this mercy that's shaped like Jesus, that gives and gives and gives. In view of that, we're called to be different. We're called to respond and live a different kind of life. We're called to live a life that looks like Jesus, that's full of grace and self-giving. And so Paul says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, and so this is not simply an addressed individual saying, now in view of God's mercy, this is how I want you and you and you. He's saying, in view of this, I want you as a people to live this way. And so Paul is painting a picture, a vision. And one of the challenges sometimes as a pastor is we can sometimes shift into a lot of should and need to and ought to. And what I want to suggest today is what Paul is doing here is just painting a picture. He's saying this is a way, a picture of a different way to live. And what that looks like is to offer your bodies to God, not ourselves. And I think he says embodies for a, be, offer our bodies for a couple of reasons. One is he's saying it's an embodied practice. Is that following Jesus isn't something simply that happens up in our mind. It's not simply thoughts, but also there's something about our bodies. Our bodies are open to public view. Because if we offer ourselves to Jesus in our mind, nobody can see that. Well, everybody can see what we do with our bodies, with our physical selves. And so Paul's saying, when you follow Jesus, I want it to be something that is embodied, that takes on flesh that people can see. And he says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. In other words, it's something that keeps going because one of the traditional sacrifices was animals were sacrificed. Well, you could only sacrifice an animal one time. You kill an animal, you put it on the altar, it gets burned up, that animal's done. And so you start over. But a living sacrifice is something that can continually give. And so he goes on and he says, what this looks like is to not conform to the pattern of this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. And so this is what Paul continues on in the rest of it, and this is what Martin Luther King Jr. called in one of his sermons being transformed nonconformists, transformed nonconformists. In other words, we're changed, we're transformed, but we don't conform to the patterns of the world. And so what I want us to think about for the rest of this message is what that looks like. To see what God's mercy looks like, to see this grace, this self giving of Christ, and allow that to shape and reshape our thinking. And the language there in this translation is um, to not be conformed to the pattern of this world. I like one uh, theologian, Douglas Herring, he, he describes it as a sense making scheme, a sense making scheme. In other words, the patterns of this world, the patterns of this world, how we make sense of the current world. And so he's contrasting it with this, and so what do I mean by a sense-making scheme? That there are things we take for granted about the way the world works. We have beliefs, we have assumptions, we have images, concepts, metaphors. So for example, metaphors, when we talk about time, what are the kind of language we use around time, how we spend our time, how we use time, we save time, what does that tell us about time? that time is a commodity, that time is limited, that time is something we spend and maybe there's not enough of it, all these language that we use around it. And so those are all part of the sense-making scheme that exists in our world and it tells us about the way we think about the world and oftentimes we're just unaware of those. It's about the way the society that we live in thinks about relations and institutions and systems and powers, about the habits that practice that we practice, that confirm us, that conform us to and embody them in order to attain the good life. So the sense-making scheme of the world is something that says, this is what the good life looks like. This is the goal we're all reaching for, what we're striving for. It's about the systems that tell us what's real and what's not real. And so Paul is saying, I want you to be transformed and not conform to the sense-making scheme of the world, In other words, we're not taking our ideas, our thoughts, our patterns, the way we view the world from what we hear and what we absorb around us, but instead we're learning it from Jesus, the one who is the one who's filled with grace, who gives indiscriminately, the one who self-sacrifices. And it's hard because we spend all day in this society. We're steeped in this. And so I think what the rest of chapter 12 does is present some pictures of that, say, this is what it looks like to live this different kind of scheme. It's what it looks like to have this new thinking versus the old thinking. And so I want us to think, one, what it maybe looked like for Rome, and then what it looks like for us today. So in Rome, if you were to travel back 2,000 years and sit in the Roman church to walk the streets of Rome to listen to the conversations and the discussions that were had. One of the things you were notice that one of the values of that society was honor and status and glory and wealth, that there was a definitive stratification, a definitive way that society was grouped, that certain people had more value than other people, that one of the things that was most important was your honor, And that your honor was achieved in certain ways and that you didn't... Serve those who were lower than you, that when you gave a gift, there was expectations in return, all these things that looked what it looks like. But then Paul suggests something differently. He says, we're taught to think differently, this transformed way. And so in verse 3, he goes on, he says, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. Now, as he's talking about this, he's not saying it's bad to think well of yourself, He's just saying, what, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. In other words, don't over-elevate yourself, but with sober judgment, so be honest about who you are and what you have. But then he goes on and he paints this picture of how God has distributed gifts among people, and that all parts matter. So he goes on and he talks about there's one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function. So though in Christ we all, though many, form one body and each member belongs to all the others. There's all these connections. And so he's painting in this society a picture that says, in a society that would look and say, well, you have a certain amount of value, but we don't necessarily need you. You're disposable. Well, this person is more important and so they have a greater status and honor. And Paul paints a picture and says, not so in the way of Jesus. He says, not so, because we're all one body. We belong to one another. Now, I don't do this kind of thing, but what you might consider, imagine yourself doing, I'm not going to ask you to do it now, imagine yourself turning to the person in the pew next to you, because I know we're all not comfortable with that sort of thing. We're Western Michigan, and we kind of like our little box. (laughs) Don't make me talk to someone else. But I want you to imagine, if you will, in your head, turning to the person next to you and saying, I belong to you. (laughs) Some of you listen, or some of you don't. (laughs) But there's this picture of this mutuality. Now, that would be totally foreign to the church in Rome because sitting there in that church would be men and women, possibly slaves and rich and all kinds of different people. And imagine the rich person turning to the slave and saying, I belong to you. That's not how their society viewed it. But Jesus turned the world upside down and Paul is saying, I want you to get rid of that sense-making scheme that Rome has taught you, that some stand over others, but instead I want you to think about humility and that each person has value and belongs to the other. That greater gifts don't mean we're better, it just means we're different. That was Rome, now think about today. What's the sense-making schemes of today? One is consumerism. Consumerism that tells us, and so back to our Super Bowl. What is one of the main reasons that people watch the Super Bowl these days? For the advertisements, right? The commercials. The commercials are not there simply for your entertainment. That's part of it. But what's the other reason for ads? To get you to buy something. And I've talked about this before, but it's so important for us to understand because it's so much a part of our sense-making scheme, of our society, because how do advertisements work? Advertisements work by telling you that unless you have this, you won't be happy, you won't be successful, that somehow you're missing out on things. Do you ever see somebody in a commercial driving that car they're trying to sell and say, man, this sucks, this is terrible, or eating that food and saying, blah, blah. These Doritos are awful. (laughs) No, what do they do? They eat it, and they're happy, and they're joyful, and everybody's together, and the people are coming in, and they're high-fiving each other, and everybody's young and vibrant, and they're jumping around, and, and everybody's beautiful and wonderful. And those commercials are telling you what? If you have this, you will be that. Not only that, the commercials are telling you that's the picture of the real life. They're telling you that's the picture of what you should strive for. That's the picture of what you're going for. The problem with that is it promotes a competition that goes on. It promotes a competition among yourself about like, how am I keeping up with that? Is that what my life looks like? Am I keeping up with the standards that are going on? Maybe how am I keeping up with others in the midst of this? And so this consumerism, this sense-making scheme is telling us what the world is calling us to do. Consumerism also centers my own needs. It causes us to say, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? One of the other things that happens in the society that we live in is there is this promotion or this idea, philosophy that's been creeping into our society that says the goal of life is to be able to do what you want is freedom. And so one of the models or one of the things as we think back, if you're my age, which is older than some of you, younger than some of you, in in my mid-50s, okay? So if you're my age, you can think back in the 70s and 80s, who are the people that were held up as models? Who are the people that people were looking to? And then in the 90s and 2000s, and one of the things that I would suggest is maybe as we look at today's world, there are various people who are held up as models, but one of the group that is held up as people that... Are looked up to or seen as these models are the billionaires. The Jeff Bezos and the Elon Musk. And we may not say, well, I'm not looking up to them, but they, they go to places like Davos and they talk about the ways. And there's this idea because what's so amazing about a billionaire is they can just do what they want. They can hop on their private jet and they can do these things. And so there's this idea of being able to do what you want is one of the goals of society. And you think, well, I don't think like that. People save for retirement. What's one of the goals in retirement? so I can be free and I can do what I want, right? We're told that if we get out of debt, then then we can do what we want and be free. And some of those things aren't necessarily bad. But what can happen in this culture, a society that says the goal is to be able to do what you want is that commitment restricts that freedom. Because think about it this way. If the goal in life... Or, one of the goals that the sense making scheme of this world tells me is to be able to do what I want, that means I can't be tied down too much to one thing. That means if I commit myself to the local church, if I say I'm going to be there every Sunday and I'm going to be there on Sunday night, I'm going to be there on Wednesday, all of a sudden I've taken away a lot of my own freedom. If I'm committed to that, then I can't do all these other things. So, if the goal is to be able to do what I want, then commitment restricts my freedom. And so, what we get is a beginning where we begin to society becomes atomized. We become individualized because all of a sudden it's like, well, I I don't want to be too tied down to one thing. So, we become separated. We've got things. And we also live in a culture where there are choices. Oh, my word, there are choices. Just everywhere we go, there are choices, choices, choices. You go down the aisle in the grocery store. Say, I want to buy a loaf of bread. Now, when I was growing up, and if my mom told me to get on my bike and ride to town and buy a loaf of bread, there were like two choices. There was like Wonder Bread and that other stuff. And that was it. So it was pretty easy. Now imagine if somebody tells you and you've not been to the grocery store in a while, go buy a loaf of bread. And you walk in the bread aisle, And it just goes on and on and on. And you're like, which bread? But think about how that works is there's this idea of choices and there's seduction at scale. And it's not just that. Now begin to shift. Again, betting, for example. Betting used to be something that was like a few people, you could do it and you kind of, you went to these certain back rooms and you filled out cards. Now I can pull out my phone to bet on things. Yeah, not betting, betting. <laughs> I can be involved. Gambling, I mean, it's, it's near ubiquitous. It's, it's everywhere, pornography. For years it used to be, you'd, there was that little special room in the video store that was located in the back of the laundromat. And there was that special place you could go to, or you, there was the magazine section that was in the back. Now again, it's virtually everywhere. It's seduction at scale. It's this idea that there are choices, 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 and they're everywhere. And these idea of choices, we want those choices, we like those choices, we've grown into that, but those choices reduce commitment. And so we see life as a competition because if there are all these choices, one of the things is I've got to grab as much as I can. And that life is competition in which we need to maximize our opportunity. And so a couple years ago, there was a, a scandal where, wealthy parents were paying and finding ways to get their children into the right preschools so that they could go to the right elementary school, so that they could go to the right high school, so they could go to college because life existed as a competition. And the problem with that is when we run at that speed again and again and again, it leads to absolute exhaustion. Those are some of the sense-making schemes of this world. And my goal here isn't necessarily to analyze and to look at every single one of those, but to encourage you even to begin to have that imagination, that discernment, that to begin to look around and say, what am I falling into? What are the patterns am I falling into? How is the world around me shaping me and molding me, and is it healthy? And what Paul does is present an alternative vision, He presents an alternative vision in which we will see instead that we belong to others, that the body of a Christ is a place to serve rather than be served. And so he's painting this picture and he's saying, there's one model of the world. And so we can think about the choices and the multiplication and the exhaustion and the atomization and all these things going on in the world around us and say, is this fulfilling us? And what he says is, maybe our minds need to be transformed, that we need to have our minds renewed, and to see a different picture of the world, to see that the life that we're called to live is truly much better when we give one another when we're committed to one another when i see myself as belonging to others instead of seeing myself as independent absolutely free and willing to make all the choices that i'm doing because all those other choices ultimately lead to disappointment and pain and sorrow and suffering and exhaustion and so when paul paints this picture he says though we and many form one body and each member belongs to all the others And so he invites us to see a picture of what it looks like at Fruitland Covenant Church where there are all these different gifts given to people. And not one one gift isn't held up over the other. Not one gift is more important, but each and every person is valued as opposed to a society in which our society is much like the Roman society where certain people are valued more highly than others. Go on a little bit. Andrew Root, who's a theologian, he talks about this and he talks about Our obsession with youthfulness. And he talks about this in this way. He says, one of the things that has picked up in our society, our culture, is an obsession with authenticity. We need to be authentic. We need to be real. And this has been a buzzword in the church for 20 or 30 years at least. It was like I remember when I was planting a church in northern Illinois and around 2000, and I would get postcards every day because there were all kinds of new churches going up. I can guarantee you that every single one of them, somewhere on their postcard said, our church is authentic, we're real. And authenticity, how do we determine what's authentic and real? Well, oftentimes what Andrew Root argues is authenticity is based on youthfulness because they're hip, they're cool, they understand what's going on, and they're real. And so we, we obsess over youthfulness and drawing on and saying, oh, we need to be more like the youth. And he offers this Just Think about politics and politicians. They want that younger market, right? They want to say, we're reaching the 18 to 35-year-olds. It's not because they have money, because they don't. If you were a politician and you wanted the people with money, who would you be going for? The older folks, right? Some of you are older, saying, no, we don't have any money either. <laughs> but generally speaking... Generally speaking, older generations have more wealth than the younger generations do. Again, there are exceptions, but as a general... But why do politicians want the younger us? Because that's a sign of, like, we're authentic, we're real. The youth, they're hip, they're cool, they're hanging on to us. We do the same, same thing sometimes in the church, saying oh, we need to be authentic, and, and the sign that we're real and hip is we got a bunch of young people. And the young people simply become a commodity, they're a goal, they're a desire to become something so that we can maintain our institution, that we can continue on in who we are. And it's not truly that they matter to us or that we belong to them and they belong to us. We want them simply as a sign or representation that we're doing okay. And that's a commodification of people. And what the vision that Jesus is calling us to is something very different it's not a commodification of people it's not a desire but it's a desire to reach people and to love them as they truly are and he goes on as he talks about what real love looks like he says love must be sincere not that love that's fake or just pretends we know what that looks like we've seen that kind of that fake love it's like oh i love you we're all good right but there's a love that is real and it's a challenging call because Now we'll go back again to Rome. And how did Rome come to be the great empire that it was? Was it because they showed love to everybody around them? They became the empire they did by the legions of Rome. Millions of lives were lost. Millions of people sold into slavery. Millions of people subjugated to bring about the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And so the sense-making scheme of that world in which the Roman church heard this letter from Paul was a a sense-making scheme of power. That you meet power with power. That if there was something going on, if there was a rebellion in Gaul, or if there was a rebellion over here in Egypt or Alexandria, you sent the legions of Rome to meet them with power. And so they existed in a world in which that was the way to accomplish things. And Paul calls for something different. He uses language like, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. And in some ways, our world today isn't much different than the world of Rome. I mean, We may not march in the legions, but we exist in what David Fitch calls an enemy-making machine. It's about competition and one-upmanship. Again, I used the metaphor of time earlier. Think about even the metaphors that we use around when we have an argument with someone. We destroyed them. Our defenses were up. We attacked them. We tore them down. (laughs) Metaphors. just a minute. that we use around arguments all assume that the goal of the argument, what, is to win. To win, to destroy down. What if we thought about arguments differently? But we live in a society in which we're always trying to do that. Where We're trying to be a little bit better where there's this competition, what's going on. We do it among churches. We look and sometimes in the church world, we feel like the church is a competition. Oh, I heard about that church down there, man. They're doing really some great things. And sometimes, instead of celebrating that, we become jealous, we become angry. Or what I've seen, to be honest, sometimes is a tearing down to the other church. Oh, well, yeah, they're reaching people, but it's just because they're compromising. They're reaching people. because, And there's this competition that exists among people. We create markers and use them to classify people and put people in groups. There's groups, there's the fascists, and there's the woke mob. And so we use these labels to group people together and to attack them. We talk in church about a culture war. A culture war? Well, what what do you do in war? War you try and destroy, you try and kill. And so we have this language, certainly Paul talks about the idea of a spiritual war, and Paul knows that, but here he's talking about our relations with flesh and blood people. He's talking about how we relate to one another. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. He's saying love gets lived out, not in perfect environments. I mean, it's easy to love people when they're just like you. It's easy to love people when you agree on everything. But what Paul is saying, now imagine what love looks like when you don't agree. Love is given meaning when people are in conflict. And this love of Christ doesn't know boundaries. Remember what we said in view of God's mercy? God's mercy is unconditioned. So we love people not based on their worth, not based on their value, not on what they can do for us, but we love people. And that our love to them is self-giving. And so imagine, again, just this language of bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. What would it look like for a society, and by society, I mean a church, where that's our response when someone says something bad about us? Live in harmony with one another. If it is possible, as far as it depends, and you live at peace with everyone, instead our natural response is when someone attacks us, when someone, what do we want to do? We want to punch back. And Paul's saying, that's not the way of Jesus. That's not this goal. This is not what it looks like to live a transformed life. He's painting a picture. He's not necessarily always giving things to do, but in part what he's doing, he's giving things to do, but he's also painting a picture of what this might look like. And again, we turn to like Martin Luther King Jr. and the civil rights movement, and men and women who would sit on buses or sit in, in cafes or coffees. And they were trained to not respond. And it took time. They didn't just send people out and said, Oh, we're going to go sit, we're going to have a sit-in at that coffee bar and sit in the, in the whites only section. And they wouldn't just grab people off the street and say, hey, this is what we're gonna do, join the protest. They would spend time learning what it looked like to not respond with violence, to not return violence for not violence, not to re- respond with things, in order, in other words, to show the love of Jesus, because that civil rights movement was based on the love of Christ and many of them were led by pastors and preachers and this idea of what Paul is painting for in a picture particularly here in Romans 12 blessing those who persecute you bless and do not curse in other words speak well of them imagine what a culture would look like a sense making scheme where when somebody said something bad about us our response was not to say something bad about them but instead to speak well of them not to just keep it. he doesn't say those who persecute you keep your mouth shut and do nothing he says bless those who persecute you speak well of them imagine a society that looks at people a culture a church that when people speak poorly of them their response is to speak well of the other person imagine what it would look like in your own life it's what it looked like in Jesus Because when Jesus was hanging on a cross, giving His life for the sins of the world, and people were taunting Him and mocking them, you know one of the things He said? He says, Father, forgive them. He blessed them. He spoke well. He spoke goodness and life into them. And so how might we do the same? And so we can think about our own lives. We can think about our own church. And so this is what I think Paul is inviting us to do as we close our time, is to think about how we evaluate and even think about our own church. Because one of the questions we often ask ourselves, how is our church doing? How are we doing? And what are the measures, what are the markers to say how well our church is doing? Is it by the number of programs? Is it by the budget, the, the line item, that bottom line, or are we doing okay monetarily? Is it by how many young people are there, how, how vibrant the music is, how many people are doing this, how many people are... Go- what I would suggest is what Paul is calling us to and challenges the sense-making scheme is it's love. It's love. And so I wonder how we, Fruitland Covenant can think about that what would it look like to evaluate our congregation in terms of love and love must be sincere be devoted to one another in love what paul is saying is that's the sense-making scheme that's the shape of the world in view of god's mercy in view of all of what god has done to be transformed to be not conformed to the world but to be renewed and to be living the life of jesus is to be a community of love And so what I would invite us to do is to be that people, to be empowered by the Spirit, to be shaped by the life of Jesus, to be a people who are marked by and live out love. Love not just for the people who are like us. Love not just for the people who agree with us, but love for all. Love for the people in our own community who are different than us. Love for the people in the community regardless of how much or what ways they give or what gifts they have, but love for each and every person, giving value to each and every person, belonging to them. Love for our enemies, whatever those enemies are, whatever kind of people we exist in, the people who persecute us, the people who curse us, the people who speak poorly of us, the people who treat us poorly, but to love them with the same love that Jesus loved us. That's the measure of that God has called us to live by. That's the measure that Paul is inviting us to live by, the measure of love. And it's my prayer for myself, my prayer for you, that we may be a community of love, that God loved us. And when we see God's love for us, that we might live out a love that others see in us that when we see God's love for us, that we might live a life so that others see that same love in us. Amen. I invite our worship team to come forward now and lead us in our closing song of worship.